Chapter 1. Howl's Masquerade One afternoon, last summer, while walking along Washington Street, my eye was attracted by a signboard protruding over a narrow archway nearly opposite the old South Church. The sign represented the front of a stately edifice, which was designated as the Old Province House, kept by Thomas Waite. I was glad to be thus reminded of a purpose, long entertained, of visiting and rambling over the mansion of the old royal governors of Massachusetts, and entering the arched passage, which penetrated through the middle of a brick row of shops, a few steps transported me from the busy heart of modern Boston into a small and secluded courtyard. One side of this space was occupied by the square front of the province house, three stories high, and surmounted by a cupola, on the top of which a gilded Indian was discernible, with his bow bent and his arrow on the string as if aiming at the weathercock on the spire of the Old South. The figure was kept this attitude for seventy years or more, ever since good Deacon Drown, a cunning carver of wood, first stationed him on his long sentinel's watch over the city. The province house is constructed of brick, which seems recently to have been overlaid with a coat of light-coloured paint. A flight of red freestone steps, fenced in by a balustrade of curiously wrought iron, ascends from the courtyard to the spacious porch, over which is a balcony, with an iron balustrade of similar pattern and workmanship to that beneath. These letters and figures, 16 PS 79, are wrought into the ironwork of the balcony, and probably express the date of the edifice, or the initials of its founder's name. A wide door with double leaves admitted me into the hall or entry, on the right of which is the entrance to the bar room. It was in this apartment, I presume, that the ancient governors held their levies, with vice-regal pomp, surrounded by the military men, the councillors, the judges, and other officers of the crown, while all the loyalty of the province thronged to do them honour. But the room in its present condition cannot boast even of faded magnificence. The panelled wainscot is covered with dingy paint, and acquires a duskier hue from the deep shadow into which the province house is thrown by the brick block that shuts it in from Washington Street. A ray of sunshine never visits this apartment any more than the glare of the festal torches which have been extinguished from the era of the Revolution. The most venerable and ornamental object is a chimney-piece set round with Dutch tiles of blue-figured china representing scenes from scripture, and for aught I know, the Lady of Pownall or Bernard may have sat beside the fireplace and told her children the story of each blue tile. A bar in modern style, well replenished with decanters, bottles, cigar-boxes, network bags of lemons, and provided with a beer pump and a soda fount, extends along one side of the room. At my entrance, an elderly person was smacking his lips with a zest which satisfied me that the cellars of the province house still hold good liquor, though doubtless of other vintages than were quaffed by the old governor. After sipping a glass of port sangaree, prepared by the skillful hands of Mr. Thomas Waite, I besought that worthy successor and representative of so many historic personages to conduct me over their time-honored mansion. He readily complied, but to confess the truth, I was forced to draw strenuously upon my imagination in order to find art that was interesting in a house which, without its historic associations, would have seemed merely such a tavern as is usually favored by the custom of decent city boarders and old-fashioned country gentlemen. The chambers, which were probably spacious in former times, are now cut up by partitions and subdivided into little nooks, each affording scanty room for the narrow bed and chair and dressing-table of a single lodger. The great staircase, however, may be termed, without much hyperbole, a feature of grandeur and magnificence, and winds through the midst of the house by flights of broad steps 
each flight terminating in a square landing place, whence the ascent is continued towards the cupola. A carved balustrade, freshly painted in the lower stories, but growing dingier as we ascend, borders the staircase with its quaintly twisted and intertwined pillars from top to bottom. Up these stairs, the military boots, or perchance the gouty shoes of many a governor, have trodden as the wearers mounted to the cupola which afforded them so wide a view over their metropolis and the surrounding country. The cupola is an octagon, with several windows and a door opening upon the roof. From this station, as I pleased myself with imagining, Gage may have beheld his disastrous victory on Bunker Hill, unless one of the Tri-Mountains intervened. And Howe have marked the approaches of Washington's besieging army. Although the buildings, since erected in the vicinity, have shut out almost every object, save the steeple of the Old South, which seems almost within arm's length. Descending from the cupola, I paused in the garret to observe the ponderous white oak framework, so much more massive than the frames of modern houses, and thereby resembling an antique skeleton. The brick walls, the materials of which were imported from Holland, and the timbers of the mansion are still as sound as ever, but the floors and other interior parts being greatly decayed, it is contemplated to gut the whole and build a new house within the ancient frame and brickwork. Among other inconveniences of the present edifice, my host mentioned that any jar or motion was apt to shake down the dust of ages out of the ceiling of one chamber upon the floor of that beneath it. We stepped forth from the great front window into the balcony, where in old times it was doubtless the custom of the king's representative to show himself to a loyal populace, requiting their huzzas and tossed-up hats with stately bendings of his dignified person. In those days the front of the province house looked upon the street, and the whole site now occupied by the brick range of stores, as well as the present courtyard, was laid out in grass plats, overshadowed by trees and bordered by wrought iron fence. Now the old aristocratic edifice hides its time-worn visage behind an upstart modern building. At one of the back windows I observed some pretty tailoresses sewing and chatting and laughing, with now and then a careless glance towards the balcony. Descending thence, we again entered the barroom, by the elderly gentleman above mentioned, the smack of whose lips had spoken so favorably for Mr. Waite's good liquor, was still lounging in his chair. He seemed to be, if not a lodger, at least a familiar visitor of the house, who might be supposed to have his regular score at the bar, his summer seat at the open window, and his prescriptive corner at the winter's fireside. Being of a sociable aspect, I ventured to address him with a remark calculated to draw forth his historical reminiscences if any such were in his mind, and it gratified me to discover that between memory and tradition the old gentleman was really possessed of some very pleasant gossip about the province house. The portion of his talk which chiefly interested me was the outline of the following legend. He professed to have received it at one or two removes from an eyewitness, but this derivation, together with a lapse of time, must have afforded opportunities for many variations of the narrative, so that despairing of literal and absolute truth, I have not scrupled to make such further changes as seemed conducive to the reader's profit and delight. And one of the entertainments given of the province house during the latter part of the siege of Boston had passed a scene which has never yet been satisfactorily explained. The officers of the British army and the loyal gentry of the province, most of whom were collected within the beleaguered town, had been invited to a masked ball, where it was the policy of Sir William Howe to hide the distress and danger of the period and the desperate aspect of the siege under any ostentation of festivity. The spectacle of this evening, if the oldest members of the provincial court circle might be believed, 
was the most gay and gorgeous affair that had occurred in the annals of the government. The brilliantly lighted apartments were thronged with figures that seemed to have stepped from the dark canvas of historic portraits, or to have flitted forth from the magic pages of romance, or at least to have flown hither from one of the London theatres without a change of garments. Steeled knights of the conquest, bearded statesmen of Queen Elizabeth, and high-ruffled ladies of her court were mingled with characters of comedy, such as a party-coloured Mary Andrew jingling his cap and bells, a Falstaff almost as provocative of laughter as his prototype, and Don Quixote with a beanpole for a lance and a potlid for a shill. But the broadest merriment was excited by a group of figures ridiculously dressed in old regimentals, which seemed to have been purchased at a military rag fair or pilfered from some receptacle that cast off clothes of both the French and British armies. Portions of their attire had probably been worn at the siege of Louisbourg, and that coats of the most recent cut might have been rent and tattered by sword, ball, or bayonet as long ago as Wolfe's victory. One of these worthies, a tall, lank figure, brandishing a rusty sword of immense longitude, purporting to be no less a personage than General George Washington, and the other principal officers of the American army, such as Gates, Lee, Putnam, Schuyler, Ward, and Heath, were represented by similar scarecrows. An interview in the mock heroic style between the rebel warriors and the British commander-in-chief was received with immense applause, which came loudest of all from the loyalists of the colony. There was one of the guests, however, who stood apart, eyeing these antics sternly and scornfully, at once with a frown and a bitter smile. It was an old man, formerly of high station and great repute in the province, and who had been a very famous soldier in his day. Some surprise had been expressed that a person of Colonel Joliffe's known Whig principles, though now too old to take an active part in the contest, should have remained in Boston during the siege, and especially that he should consent to show himself in the mansion of Sir William Howe. But thither he had come, with a fair granddaughter under his arm, and there, amid all the mirth and buffoonery, stood this stern old figure, the best sustained character in the masquerade, because so well representing the antique spirit of his native land. The other guests affirmed that Colonel Joliffe's black puritanical scowl threw a shadow round about him, although in spite of his sombre influence, their gaiety continued to blaze higher, like an ominous comparison, the flickering brilliancy of a lamp which has but a little while to burn. Eleven strokes, full half an hour ago, had pealed from the clock of the Old South. Eleven strokes, full half an hour ago, pealed from the clock of the Old South, when a rumour was circulated among the company that some new spectacle or pageant was about to be exhibited, which had put a fitting close to the splendid festivities of the night. What new jest has your excellency in hand? asked the Reverend Mather Biles, whose Presbyterian scruples had not kept him from the entertainment. Trust me, sir, I have already laughed more than beseems my cloth at your Homeric confabulation with yonder ragamuffin general of the rebels. One other such fit of merriment, and I must throw off my clerical wig and band. Not so, good Dr. Biles, answered Sir William Howe. If mirth were a crime, you had never gained your doctorate in divinity. As to this new foolery, I know no more about it than yourself. Perhaps not so much. Honestly, now, Doctor, have you not stirred up the sober brains of some of your countrymen to enact a scene in our masquerade? Perhaps, slyly remarked the granddaughter of Colonel Jolliffe, whose high spirit had been stung by many taunts against New England. Perhaps we are to have a mask of allegorical figures. Victory 
with trophies from Lexington and Bunker Hill, plenty with her overflowing horn to typify the present abundance in this good town, and glory with a wreath for His Excellency's brow. Sir William Howe smiled at words with which he would have answered with one of his darkest frowns had they been uttered by lips that wore a beard. He was spared the necessity of a retort by a singular interruption. The sound of music was heard without the house, as proceeding from the full band of military instruments stationed in the street, playing not such a festal strain as was suited to the occasion, but a slow funeral march. The drums appeared to be muffled, and the trumpets poured forth a wailing breath, which at once hushed the merriment of the auditors, filling all with wonder, and some with apprehension. The idea occurred to many that, Either the funeral procession of some great personage had halted in front of the province house, or that a corpse in a velvet-covered and gorgeously decorated coffin was about to be borne from the portal. After listening a moment, Sir William Howe called, in a stern voice, to the leader of the musicians, who had hitherto enlivened the entertainment with gay and lightsome melodies. The man was drum-major to one of the British regiments. Dighton, demanded the general. What means this foolery? Bid your band silence that dead march, or, by my word, they shall have sufficient cause for their lugubrious strains. Silence it, said R. Please, your honour, answered the drum major, whose rubicon visage had lost all its colour. The fault is none of mine. I and my band are all here together, and I question whether there be a man of us that could play that march without book. I never heard it but once before, and that was at the funeral of his late majesty, King George the Second. Well, well, said William Howe, recovering his composure. It is the prelude to some masquerading antic. Let it pass. A figure now presented itself, but among the many fantastic masks that were dispersed through the apartments, none could tell precisely from whence it came. It was a man in an old-fashioned dress of black serge, and having the aspect of a steward, a principal domestic in the household of a nobleman, or great English landholder. His figure advanced to the outer door of the mansion, and throwing both its leaves wide open, withdrew a little to one side, and looked back towards the grand staircase, as if expecting some person to descend. At the same time, the music in the street sounded a loud and doleful summons. The eyes of Sir William Howe and his guests being directed to the staircase, there appeared on the uppermost landing place that was discernible from the bottom, several personages descending towards the door. The foremost was a man of stern visage, wearing a steeple-crowned hat and a skull-cap beneath it, a dark cloak and huge wrinkled boots that came halfway up his legs. Under his arm was a rolled-up banner, which seemed to be the banner of England, but strangely rent and torn. He had a sword in his right hand and grasped a Bible in his left. The next figure was of milder aspect, yet full of dignity wearing a broad ruff, over which descended a beard, a gown of wrought velvet, and a very striking countenance and demeanour, with deep thought and contemplation on his brow, and perhaps a flash of enthusiasm in his eye. His garb, like that of his predecessors, was of an antique fashion, and there was a stain of blood upon his ruff. In the same group with these were three or four others, all men of dignity and evident command, and bearing themselves like personages who were accustomed to the gaze of the multitude. It was the idea of the beholders that his figures wanted to join the mysterious funeral that had halted in front of the province house, yet that supposition 
seemed to be contradicted by the air of triumph with which they waved their hands as they crossed the threshold and vanished through the portal. In the devil's name, what is this? muttered Sir William Howe to a gentleman beside him. A possession of the regicide judges of King Charles the Martyr? These, said Colonel Jolliffe, breaking silence almost for the first time that evening, these, if I interpret them aright, are the Puritan governors, the rulers of the old original democracy of Massachusetts. Endicott, with the banner from which he had torn the symbol of subjection, and Wimthrop, and Sir Henry Vane, and Dudley, Haynes, Bellingham, and Leverett. Why had that young man a stain of blood upon his ruff? asked Miss Jolliffe. Because in after years, answered her grandfather, he lay down the wisest head in England upon the block for the principles of liberty. Will not your excellency order out the guard? whispered Lord Percy, who, with other British officers, had now assembled round the general. There may be a plot under this mummery. Tush, we have nothing to fear, carelessly replied Sir William Howe. There can be no worse treason in the matter than a jest, and that's somewhat of the dullest. Even were it a sharp and bitter one, our best policy would be to laugh it off. See, here come more of these gentry. Another group of characters had now partly descended the staircase. The first was a venerable and white-bearded patriarch, who cautiously felt his way downward with a staff. Treading hastily behind him, and stretching forth his gauntleted hand, as if to grasp the old man's shoulder, came a tall soldier-like figure, equipped with a plumed cap of steel, a bright breastplate, and a long sword, which rattled against the stair. Next was seen a stout man, dressed in rich and courtly attire, but not of courtly demeanour. His gait had the swinging motion of a seaman's walk, and chancing to stumble on the staircase, he suddenly grew wrathful, and was heard to mutter an oath. He was followed by a noble-looking personage in a curled wig, such as are represented in the portraits of Queen Anne's time and earlier, and the breast of his coat was decorated with an embroidered star. While advancing to the door, he bowed to the right hand and to the left. If it please your excellency, they lived somewhat before my day, answered the doctor, but doubtless our friend the colonel has been hand in glove with them. Their living faces I never looked upon, said Colonel Jolliffe gravely. Although I have spoken face to face with many rulers of this land, and shall greet yet another with an old man's blessing, ere I die, that we talk of these figures, they take the venerable patriarch to be Bradstreet, the last of the Puritans, who was governor at ninety, or thereabouts. The next is Sir Edmund Andros, a tyrant, as any New England schoolboy will tell you, and therefore the people cast him down from his high seat into a dungeon. Then comes Sir William Phipps, Shepherd, Cooper, Sea Captain, and Governor. May many of his countrymen rise as high from as low an origin. Lastly, you see the gracious Earl of Bellamont, who ruled us under King William. But what is the meaning of it all? asked Lord Percy. Now, why a rebel? said Miss Jolliffe, half aloud. I might fancy that the ghosts of these ancient governors had been summoned to form the funeral possession of royal authority in New England. Several other figures were now seen at the turn of the staircase. The one in advance had a thoughtful, anxious, and somewhat crafty expression of face, and in spite of his loftiness of manner, which was evidently the result of both an ambitious spirit and of long continuance in high stations, he seemed not incapable of cringing to a greater than himself. A few steps behind came an officer in a scarlet and embroidered uniform, cut 
in a fashion old enough to have been worn by the Duke of Marlborough. His nose had a rubicund tinge, which together with the twinkle of his eye might have marked him as a lover of the wine-cup and good fellowship, notwithstanding which tokens he appeared ill at ease, and often glanced around him as if apprehensive of some secret mischief. Next came a portly gentleman, wearing a coat of shaggy cloth, lined with silk and velvet. He had sense, shrewdness, and humour in his face, and a folio volume under his arm. But his aspect was that of a man, vexed and tormented beyond all patience, and harassed almost to death. He went hastily down, and was followed by a dignified person, dressed in a purple velvet suit, with very rich embroidery. His demeanour would have possessed much stateliness, only that a grievous fit of the gout compelled him to hobble from stair to stair, with contortions of face and body. When Dr. Biles beheld this figure on the staircase, he shivered, as with an ague, but continued to watch him steadfastly until the gouty gentleman had reached the threshold, made a gesture of anguish and despair, and vanished into the outer gloom, whither the funeral music summoned him. Governor Belcher, my old patron, in his very shape and dress, gasped Dr. Biles, this is an awful mockery. A tedious foolery, rather, said Sir William Howe, with an air of indifference. But who were the three that preceded him? Governor Dudley, a cunning politician, yet his craft once brought him to a prison, replied Colonel Jolliffe. Governor Shute, formerly a colonel under Marlborough, and whom the people frightened out of the province, and learned Governor Burnet, whom the legislature tormented into a mortal fever. Methinks they were miserable men, these royal governors of Massachusetts, observed Miss Jolliffe. Heavens, how dim the light grows! It was certainly a fact that the large lamp which illuminated the staircase now burned dim and dusky so that several figures which passed hastily down the stairs and went forth from the porch appeared rather like shadows than persons of fleshly substance. Sir William Howe and his guests stood at the doors of the contiguous apartments, watching the progress of this singular pageant with various emotions of anger, contempt, or half-acknowledged fear, but still with an anxious curiosity. The shapes, which now seemed hastening to join the mysterious procession, were recognized rather by striking peculiarities of dress or broad characteristics of manner than by any perceptible resemblance of features to their prototypes. Their faces, indeed, were invariably kept in deep shadow, but Dr. Biles, another gentleman who had long been familiar with the successive rulers of the province, were heard to whisper the names of Shirley, of Powell, of Sir Francis Bernard, and of the well-remembered Hutchinson, thereby confessing that the actors, whoever they might be, in the spectral march of governors, had succeeded in putting on some distant portraiture of the real personages. As they vanished from the door, still did these shadows toss their arms into the gloom of night with a dread expression of woe. Following the mimic representative of Hutchinson came a military figure, holding before his face the cocked hat which he had taken from his powdered head. But his epaulets and other insignia of rank were those of a general officer, and something in his mien reminded the beholders of one who had recently been master of the province house and chief of all the land. The shape of Gage, as true as in any looking-glass, exclaimed Lord Percy, turning pale. No, surely, cried Miss Jolliffe, laughing hysterically, it could not be Gage, or Sir William would have greeted his old comrade-in-arms. Perhaps he will not suffer the next to pass unchallenged. Oh, of that be assured, young lady, answered Sir William Howe fixing his eyes with a very marked expression upon the immovable visage of her grandfather. 
I have long enough delayed to pay the ceremonies of a host to these departing guests. The next that takes his leave shall receive due courtesy. A wild and dreary burst of music came through the open door. It seemed as if the procession, which had been gradually filling up its ranks, were now about to move, and that this loud peal of the wailing trumpets and roll of the muffled drums was a call to some loiterer to make haste. Many eyes, by an irresistible impulse, were turned upon Sir William Howe, as if it were he whom the dreary music summoned to the funeral of the departed power. See, here comes the last, whispered Miss Jolliffe, pointing her tremulous finger to the staircase. A figure had come into view, as if descending the stair, although so dusky was the region whence it emerged, some of the spectators fancied that they had seen this human shape suddenly moulding itself amid the gloom. Downward the figure came, with a stately and martial tread, and reaching the lowest stair was observed to be a tall man, booted and wrapped in a military cloak, which was drawn up around the face, the flapped brim of a laced hat. The features, therefore, were completely hidden, but the British officers deemed that they had seen that military cloak before, and even recognized the frayed embroidery on the collar, as well as the gilded scabbard of a sword, which protruded from the folds of the cloak and glittered in the vivid gleam of light. Apart from these trifling particulars, there were characteristics of gait and bearing which impelled the wandering guests to glance from the shrouded figure to Sir William Howe, as if to satisfy themselves that their host had not suddenly vanished from the midst of them. With a dark flush of wrath upon his brow, they saw the general draw his sword and advance to meet the figure in the cloak before the latter had stepped one pace upon the floor. Villain, unmuffle yourself, cried he. You pass no further. The figure, without blenching a hair's breadth from the sword which was pointed at his breast, made a solemn pause and lowered the cape of the cloak from about his face, yet not sufficiently for the spectators to catch a glimpse at it. But Sir William Howe had evidently seen enough. The sternness of his countenance gave place to a look of wild amazement, if not horror, while he recoiled several steps from the figure and let fall his sword upon the floor. The martial shape again drew the cloak about his features and passed on but reaching the threshold, with his back towards the spectators, he was seen to stamp his foot and shake his clinched hands in the air. It was afterwards affirmed that Sir William Howe had repeated that self-same gesture of rage and sorrow, when for the last time, and as the last royal governor, he passed through the portal of the province house. Park, the procession moves, said Miss Jolliffe. The music was dying away along the street, and its dismal strains were mingled with the knell of midnight from the steeple of the Old South with the roar of artillery which announced that the beleaguering army of Washington had entrenched itself upon a nearer height than before. As the deep boom of the cannon smote upon his ear, Colonel Jolliffe raised himself to the full height of his aged form and smiled sternly on the British general. Would your excellency inquire further into the mystery of the pageant, said he. Take care of your grey head, cried Sir William Howe fiercely, though with a quivering lip. It has stood too long on a traitor's shoulders. You must make haste to chop it off, then, calmly replied the colonel. For a few hours longer, and not all the people of Sir William Howe, nor of his master, shall cause one of these grey hairs to fall. The empire of Britain, in this ancient province, is at its last gasp to-night. Almost while I speak, it is a dead corpse, and methinks the shadows of the old governors are fit mourners at its funeral. With these words, Colonel Jolliffe threw on his cloak, and drawing his granddaughter's arm within his own, 
retired from the last festival that a British ruler ever held in the old province of Massachusetts Bay. It was supposed that the colonel and the young lady possessed some secret intelligence in regard to the mysterious pageant of that night. However this might be, such knowledge has never become general. The actors in the scene have vanished into a deeper obscurity than even that wild Indian band who scattered the cargoes of the tea ships on the waves and gained a place in history, yet left no name. But superstition, among other legends of this mansion, repeats the wondrous tale that on the anniversary night of Britain's discomfiture, the ghosts of the ancient governors of Massachusetts still glide through the portal of the province house. And last of all comes a figure shrouded in a military cloak, tossing his clenched hands into the air and stamping his iron-shod boots upon the broad freestone steps with a semblance of feverish despair, but without the sound of a foot-tramp. When the truth-telling accents of the elderly gentleman were hushed, I drew a long breath and looked around the room, striving with the best energy of my imagination to throw a tinge of romance and historic grandeur over the realities of the scene. But my nostrils snuffed up a scent of cigar smoke, clouds of which the narrator had emitted by way of visible emblem, I suppose, of the nebulous obscurity of his tale. Moreover, my gorgeous fantasies were woefully disturbed by the rattling of the spoon and the tumbler of whiskey punch, which Mr. Thomas Waite was mingling for a customer. Nor did it add to the picturesque appearance of the panelled walls that the slate of the Brookline stage was suspended against them, instead of the armorial escutcheon of some far-descended governor. A stage-driver sat at one of the windows, reading a penny paper of the day, the Boston Times, and presenting a figure which could nowise be brought into any picture of times in Boston, seventy or hundred years ago. In the window-seat lay a bundle, neatly done up in brown paper, the direction of which I had the idle curiosity to read. Miss Susan Huggins at the Province House. A pretty chambermaid, no doubt. In truth, it is desperately hard work when we attempt to throw the spell of hoar antiquity over localities with which the living world and the day that is passing over us have an art to do. Yet as I glanced at the stately staircase down which the procession of the old governors had descended, and as I emerged through the venerable portal whence their figures had preceded me, it gladdened me to be conscious of a thrill of awe. Then, diving through the narrow archway, a few strides transported me into the densest throng of Washington Street.